Well, sometimes hopelessness is related to helplessness. When we're unable to control things, we can feel powerless and we can feel hopeless. In fact, there's probably nothing more hopeless than feeling trapped. Trapped in prison, trapped in quarantine, quarantine. or maybe trapped in a job that you hate or a relationship that is toxic. When we're trapped, we feel helpless, which often leads to hopelessness. We can also feel this when we're trapped in a sin. Maybe it's an addiction to a substance or it's an activity that you know is harmful and wrong. Maybe it's a behaviour that you try and try to stop, but you just keep on failing. Maybe it's an attitude to others that you want to change, but you keep feeling the same wrong feelings. And the hardest thing about being trapped in a sin is our helplessness to fix it. We keep sinning and we can't stop it. And we feel trapped and we feel hopeless. But the reason we feel trapped in our sin is because we so easily forget that we need a saviour. We use all these self-help techniques to, to try and fix our sin and we show, so we try harder and harder to stop our addiction and to modify our behaviour and to correct our attitudes. And we try and we try and we try and then we fail. And it only proves that we're trapped in our sin. We feel helpless and so we feel hopeless. Sadly, many religions make this situation worse, not better. They create rules and laws to try and give people something to strive for. And then when we succeed in those laws, we we feel self-righteous. But when we fail in those laws, we feel hopeless. Even some versions of Christianity will set people up for this kind of failure. But it's even worse when things go wrong in our lives, when our relationships fail or we have a health crisis or we go through financial stress. And when that happens, people might say, well, it's because you're weak in faith. But our lack of performance leads to a lack of hope. Because we need more than anything, someone to help us. We need a saviour. We need a Messiah. We need Jesus. And that's the good news that we read in the Bible. And it's in fact what we've been reading in Matthew's Gospel over the last 10 chapters. And we're up to 11 today. And it begins with verse 1. That when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. Jesus has been giving almost military orders to his 12 disciples And now they were to act and speak on his behalf. And since they've now been commissioned, now Jesus gets onto his core business, which is teaching and preaching. He knows that the most important thing he can do for anyone is to teach them how to enter the kingdom of heaven. He knows that by preaching a message that tells people to repent of their sins and follow the Messiah, that they will have hope and that they will 
no longer be helpless when it comes to their sin and their failings. But there's one guy who is particularly invested in this mission. Verse 2. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. Remember John the Baptist? He was the guy who was preaching in the desert, telling people to repent of their sins. And now we read that John has landed up in, in prison, which we'll find out in a few chapters' time, is because he offended some very, very powerful people. But John has heard about the things the Messiah was doing, the works of the Christ, and so verse 2 to 3, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? They've been waiting for centuries for God to send his true Messiah. And John, it seems, has a hunch that Jesus might actually be the one. And so this is the reply that he gets from Jesus, verse 4. Jesus tells him, Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. Maybe John just wanted a simple yes or no, but he didn't get it. Instead, Jesus pointed to his signs and his wonders. All the signs and wonders that he'd been doing were matching up with what the Old Testament people expected when the Messiah would come. And he wanted to say to John, as he would say to anybody there, join the dots. And probably Jesus had in mind something like this passage from Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6, which says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, here we go, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. What he's saying is that Jesus is the Messiah by his actions. He's saying, look at what I'm doing. Does it look like what you see in Isaiah the prophet? Aha, uh -huh. tick the boxes. He healed people to give that proof. It's pretty basically straightforward. The evidence speaks for itself. And the obvious response for John the Baptist and for all the people of Israel at that time was just to say, okay, Messiah has arrived, tick those boxes, let's go. But not everybody is going to sign up for that. Because Jesus added in verse 6, God blesses those who do not fall away, do not stumble because of me. You would think that everybody would just automatically believe the Messiah. I mean, I get it when people sort of say, oh, you know, it's in a book that's 2,000 years old and it's been mistranslated and Chinese whispers. I mean, none of that's true. But, you know, I, they, people can say all those different things. But when the guy's there and he actually says to this person, be healed or you can speak, and he's right there, you'd think, surely everybody would just get on board 100%. Everybody would sign up. But no, that's not the case. And the reason is, amongst other things, Jesus didn't fit the mould of the Messiah. They had in mind what they thought the Messiah would be like. But they just didn't... It wasn't what they expected when they saw Jesus. And so they'd fall away because of Jesus. I wonder if you've had those kind of conversations with other people before. 
You've told people about Jesus, but they just can't seem to believe in him. Maybe you yourself have had those conversations and you've, you've connected here tonight online or, and you're thinking, I, I, I'm hearing this stuff, I just, I just can't get across the line. Maybe deep down you think Jesus is the saviour of the world, but oh, I just don't think I'm there yet to be able to tick that box and sign up and follow Jesus. Jesus said to them 2,000 years ago, and indeed in the Bible tonight, he says to us all, don't stumble because of the Messiah. Well, next verse 7. We read that as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. He said, what kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Jesus starts talking to the crowds about the great John the Baptist and talks about his strength and talking about his integrity. And then he goes on in verse 8, he says, Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Now, John was probably more likely to wear boots and khaki, not a suit and tie. He, he didn't look like a dignitary. He didn't look like a dignitary, someone who was sort of powerful and influential and impressive ruler. Uh, he basically looked like a rough and tumble desert dweller. And most of all, Jesus says, were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. See, John is the ultimate Old Testament prophet. I know he's in the New Testament, but like I've been saying, this is sort of overlap stuff, right? He is the ultimate New Testament, ultimate Old Testament prophet in the New Testament because he is ready to say the truth even if it lands him in trouble, even if it lands him in prison as he is. And that is because John had a special role to play in preparing people for the Messiah. And we read verse 10, Jesus said, John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. John was given the role by God to get everyone ready for the Messiah. And that makes him the greatest man who has ever lived. And he is the support act, really, for the greatest preacher of all. Because we read that, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. See, John was the greatest support act. But it's interesting because at that point in time, it seems that though he had a pretty big hunch, he may not have fully joined those dots just yet. That relative of his, Jesus of Nazareth, he's thinking he's someone pretty special, but maybe he hadn't in fact come on board yet. And so in verse 11b, it says even the least person of the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Huh? What does that mean? Well, I think it's because very soon John would realise that his relative Jesus was in fact the Messiah. But until he came to that realisation in full, he wasn't actually part of the kingdom of heaven. And so even though he's awesome, he is still less than the least person in the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. It's kind of just like what we were all like before we came to know that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And then as soon as you trust in Jesus as Messiah, you are great in God's sight because you and I are part of the kingdom of heaven. We move into that new kingdom. But this truth is not without controversy, of course. It wasn't, if it wasn't a spiritual thing, you'd actually expect that everyone on the planet would naturally just want to follow Jesus as Messiah. You'd say, it's obvious, as clear as the nose on my face. Why wouldn't you want to just sign up to follow Jesus? But it is spiritual. And that is why the kingdom of heaven was under attack in Jesus' time and continues to be under attack today. Verse 12. And from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. In all of this, Jesus is as controversial as anyone can be. People were divided about who Jesus was. And people continue to be divided about who Jesus is. But the truth is, Jesus is the one that everyone in the Old Testament was truly waiting for. Verses 13 to 15. Jesus says, For before John came, all the prophets and the law of Moses looked forward to this present time. And if you're willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah. Huh? How could that be? Well, he's not literally Elijah, is he? Well, no. He's kind of doing the job of Elijah, so it seems. Because look at the final two verses of the Old Testament. The very last two verses of the entire Old Testament, the end of Malachi, it says, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, and otherwise I will come and strike the land with a curse. Jesus is saying, John is fulfilling that role of Elijah. So many hundreds of years were there from, from the end of the Old Testament to the New, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and John's... And Jesus says, John is that Elijah because the time has come. He had the job of preparing people for the day of the Lord. But not everybody is going to respond favourably to John's ministry. And they won't respond well to Jesus either. It's very sad, really. But the generation that was alive at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus... Those people who knew the Bible, they were Old Testament people and they were right there in the very presence of Jesus and before him, John the Baptist. And yet they rejected the true Messiah. Somehow the, the true Messiah in their mind was different to the true Messiah who was actually there. They, they, they couldn't match the two up. They had an idea of what they thought the Messiah would be like. They thought that he'd be like a the great military leader, just like the, the warring kings of old. He'd come in and he'd kick out the Romans and there'd be a huge war, just like we read in one kings and two kings. That's what they're expecting for their Messiah. And, and probably at the same time, he would be like the most super-duper religious Jewish kind of guy. 
And he would do exactly what they were doing all along in the temple and in, in the synagogues and everything. And they would, he would tick every single box, literally like they thought. They had their mind set about what the Messiah would be like. And then Jesus turns up and they say, yeah, nah, you're not the man. And in all of this, they were blinded from the truth. Blinded from the truth. They wanted to play their own game. They wanted to sing their own tune. Verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation of people right now alive in his time? It's like children playing a game in the public square and they complain to their friends, we played wedding songs and you didn't dance. We played then funeral songs and you didn't mourn. See, this generation has constructed their own picture of the Messiah. But when the real Messiah comes along, they say, nah. They reject him. John and Jesus didn't play their game. John and Jesus didn't dance to their song. Why? Because they had it all wrong. And so, so many of that generation rejected John and they rejected Jesus. Verses 18 and 19. For John, Jesus says, didn't spend his time eating and drinking. And then you say, oh, he's possessed by a demon. Really? The son of man, on the other hand, he feasts and drinks. And you say, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Oh. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. No matter what Jesus and John do, that generation rejected them both. They said John was demonic. They said Jesus was a drunk. Can you believe it? They are there right there in, in the very presence of those two great men. And they reject that generation. They, they reject him. That generation rejects those men. And you think, how could they get it so wrong? How could they be so blind? Surely they had hard hearts like no one else ever. They were in the presence of the Messiah. They could eyeball him. Imagine that. They could look him in the eyes. And yet they turn away and they say, oh, he's a drunk. They must have had a special kind of hard heart. A super hard heart. How could they be so thick-hearted? And so then Jesus said that the judgment for that generation was going to be devastating. Those people who were breathing the same air as Jesus, who were in the same room as Jesus, who were seeing Jesus' amazing acts, and most of all, hearing his amazing words, and they say, yeah, nah. And Jesus says, they will get hammered when it comes to judgment day. And so he says, that we read verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the towns where he had done so many of his miracles because they hadn't repented of their sins and turned to God. They had so much more than we ever had because they had Jesus standing in front of them. And before that, they had John making a big noise. And yet, no, they wouldn't repent and they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't repent. 
and they wouldn't believe. And so, verse 21 and 22, we read, what Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, those people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in sackcloth, in burlap, and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. This is not Jesus quiet and meek and mild. He is having a go at them, and rightly so. They had the Messiah right in front of them. But they said, nah. They wouldn't repent, and they wouldn't believe. But it's not just those guys, Chorazin and Bethsaida, because verse 23 and, and 24, Jesus keeps going. He says, and you people, Capernaum, will you be honoured in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did in you had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. I tell you, even Sodom will be better off on judgment day than you, Capernaum. Sodom is the place that, that epitomised evil. And Jesus is saying they're better off than Capernaum. Nice little Capernaum. No. This generation had direct access to the Messiah. And yet they didn't accept him. They didn't recognise him. They rejected him. It is so sad. It is so stupid. How could you be a scholar of the Old Testament and know your Hebrew front to back? You know, you know it really, really well, the whole thing really, really well. And then the guy turns up that it's talking about and you say, no, not you. Really? It is tragic. It is a, it is a tragic thing. And you have got to say it was a deep spiritual thing because how else can you understand that? How else can you make sense of that? And that's, in fact, what Jesus understood it to be. And so right then, at that point, he says in verse 25, at that time Jesus prayed this prayer, and it's written down for us to listen. It says, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. It's a really interesting prayer when you stop and think about it, what Jesus is praying there. And I think it shows us very clearly that their blindness was a spiritual thing. They were blind because it had not been revealed to them. But the flip side is that when people saw the truth, it was also a spiritual thing. See, the father of our Lord Jesus was responsible for them having their eyes opened and having their eyes closed. Both were true. But the big thing is that human wisdom was not enough. Aren't we wise? Don't we have wise people around? And surely 2,000 years more than this, we're even wiser than ever before. Surely, really? Human wisdom was not enough in Jesus' time. 
the really, 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 really wise guys didn't get it. People needed God to open their eyes. Which is why some of the childlike could recognise Jesus as the Messiah. Even though high-powered, supercharged religious types did not get it. They were as spiritually blind as a bat. This is why we need to pray that people will become followers of Jesus. If you think it's just about you being really, really clever at explaining things to people about what they need to do to become a Christian, if you think that's it, then you've got to say, oh, right, okay, so you can do it better than Jesus, right? Because Jesus was pretty good at preaching and stuff. You know, he had the tricks, he could do the stuff, he made it clear he was the Messiah, yeah? And you reckon you can just go in there and just be really smart and really clever and really clear and use PowerPoint. Woohoo! And someone's going to become a Christian without a spiritual thing happening? Not a chance. Blindness is a spiritual thing, and so is seeing. This is what we need to keep praying for. This is why we have a long list of things we pray for every week. So every day we're praying that God would open people's eyes. And what it means is that if your eyes have been opened, then you can know that it's not because you're smart, not because you're super spiritual. It's because you are super blessed. Blessed that God would open your eyes for you. It is a wonderful gift from God. And what's more, we can't even know God, the Father, except by the Son showing him to us. This is what Jesus says in verse 27. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We only get to know the Father because the Son has revealed him to us. Doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are or how religious your parents were. Doesn't matter how nice or powerful or rich or wise you might be. It is a gift from God from start to finish. And I've got to say that's a humbling thing. Because I reckon I kind of sometimes like to think of myself quite highly. I I think, you know, gee whiz, these people out there who don't know Jesus think that they can just, it all just happens by accident. Oh, how silly. If only they had the enlightenment that I have, you know, being so wise and spiritual and religious and, you know, all those kind of things. You idiot. (laughs) What a humbling thing it must be for us to realise it's not because you're really, you know, you're the bee's knees. You are saved when the eyes you when your spiritual eyes are opened it's a gift from god from start to finish and in the end even our faith is a gift from god to us and when we see the beauty of the lord jesus we know that it's something that has come to us from god and now the chapter ends with us seeing just how wonderful it really is to have jesus as our lord and savior here are the final three verses Find them quite familiar, I think. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. They're very well-known verses, aren't they? They, they are amongst the so-called comfortable words that Cramner decided to use in the Book of Common Prayer in the service of Lord's Supper. There are four of them, and that's the one that opens the batting. And you see it there, and we will sometimes use them as we have the Lord's Supper here as well. And of course, they're, fa- they're famous to us here in Jamboree because they're the verses that the book Gentle and Lowly is based on. That I am humble and gentle, or gentle and lonely. They are words that bring hope to the hopeless. They are words that help us in our helplessness. And that's because they speak to all of us who find it impossibly hard to deal with our sins and failures. But the original context actually helps us understand even more about what Jesus was offering to us. If you really want to get inside these words and get deeper and really grab them, we've got to do to these verses what we've been doing throughout Matthew's Gospel. Because in these verses, Jesus is speaking primarily to whom? To the lost sheep of Israel. That's who he's speaking to. Remember what he said to his disciples in the chapter before? He says, don't go to those Gentiles. I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And then Jesus starts speaking. And who's he speaking to? The lost sheep of Israel. At that time. He is speaking to the people who were overcome with the burdens of keeping hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws and regulations and traditions. He was speaking to people who knew that they could not save themselves. He was speaking to the helpless. The helpless who were the hopeless. Jesus spoke to the helpless who were the hopeless and he said this to them. Verse 28, I'll read it again. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Those lost sheep of the first century, they were carrying the burdens of keeping the law. And to us, 2,000 years later nearly, We are carrying the burdens of performance anxiety. By nature, we all know that we've got to perform well to impress God and to avoid judgment day. And it is a burden that will crush us. We feel hopeless because we're helpless. And so Jesus offers us rest. But what does rest mean? When I think of rest, I think it's that feeling you have when you've been on a long hike and you've got 20 kilos on your back and the shoulders because you pack every single possible thing you'll never use. And you're walking around and it's a long day and it's a hard day and you get to the end of the day and it's nearly too dark but you got there just in time and the mosquitoes are out, you don't care. You take your pack off and you put it down And you just lie it on a 45 degree angle and you lie back against it. And then someone starts a fire and you have a cup of tea. You think, we should set up a tent. (laughs) Who cares? And you just, you think that's rest. That's what I think of rest. And you've probably got your rest stories as well. But Jesus is actually talking about something more than that. 
You know what happened when, when King David finally got to Jerusalem? And he finally got to King David's city. And he's there and he's put down roots and he says, I am here, I am in my place. How does the, how does the Bible describe that situation? 2 Samuel chapter 7, when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest. Rest from all the surrounding enemies. Right there, the Lord had given him rest. It was a peace. A peace with God. A peace with others. A, a kind of a, 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 a rest from the antagonism and the hatred of all those around him. It was this special moment. But it didn't last. We've looked through 1 Kings, and you know what I'm talking about? That's why. Bad kings, bad, bad kings. Okay, kings, bad, bad, bad kings. But the promise of rest still stood. Like in Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says. Those who survive the coming destruction will find blessings even in the barren land. For I will give rest to the people of Israel. So when Jesus comes along and he says, Come to me all of you who are weak and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's not just saying, I'm going to give you a chance to go, <sighs> or even spiritually to go, <sighs> he's actually talking about life in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about that, that sense of security that King David had as he got into Jerusalem. That sense of peace that he had from his enemies. That sense of being settled. See, rest is about, for us, it is about peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a gift from Jesus. Because I tell you, the burden of, of having to fix our broken lives, that is removed from our weary shoulders. That, that burden of having to repair our broken relationship with God it is lifted from our sore necks. And instead, Jesus gives us rest. And he says, verse 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. If we listen and follow his teaching... We will find that rest for our souls from him. And what's more, we will know for ourselves the humble and gentle heart of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Humble and gentle. Gentle and lowly. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care. Precious Saviour, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus was telling the lost sheep of Israel that he was their shepherd, their Messiah, the suffering servant of God. He showed them that he brought them the long-awaited rest that came with having peace with God as they lived the spiritual promised land, as they enjoyed peace from their enemies. And now for us, we who live after the Son of Man came in glory at the cross. 
We can know this peace. We can know this rest as we come to the Lord Jesus, for he offers us relief. Relief from the burden of our sins. Relief as he teaches us his humble and gentle heart. Relief from the burden of having to try and fix those sins. For when we come to Jesus, we finally find help for the helpless. And as he brings us help, he brings us hope.